Welcome to episode 132 of the X-Files Retrospective Podcast, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This time around, we're looking at both parts of Dreamland. So that's Dreamland and Dreamland 2, with the original air dates of November 29th, 1998 and December 6th, 1998. Part 1's IMDb user score has risen from 9 to 9.1 out of 10, while Part 2 has risen from 8.7 to 9.0 out of 10 following the Fox Marathon. The action primarily takes place in a combination of Nevada and Washington, D.C. Now, both parts were written by Vince Gilligan, John Scheiben, and Frank Spotnitz. It's a combination that can also be arranged to produce the name John Gilnitz, which is a name that shows up in the course of the episode as well. Part 1 was directed by Rob Bowman, who we've heard about many times and we'll hear from again. Part 2 was directed by Michael W. Watkins. This is Watkins' first X-Files credit. His work prior to the X-Files was on Quantum Leap, Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, Millennium, and more. He went on to direct NYPD Blue, Smallville, The Agency Monk, and Justified after this. And he's got a total of six X-Files episodes to his name. For a quick plot summary... Mulder and Scully respond to an informant and travel to Area 51. They're intercepted by Morris Fletcher and other men in black when a triangular UFO, similar to the one seen in EB, flies overhead, leaving something of a ripple effect in its wake. Mulder and Morris Fletcher are subjected to a body swap. Mulder takes advantage of the situation to infiltrate Area 51, but ends up also trying to navigate a marriage that's all but over. Morris makes no attempt to get back to his old life, although Mulder does once he realizes what the married life is and what information he has access to. So Morris starts happily following Kirsch's orders instead, trying not to rock the boat, playing a lot of computer golf at the office. And this is behavior that ultimately convinces Scully that the crackpot who keeps phoning her to say that, yeah, there was a body swap and the real Mulder is not the man in Mulder's body, is actually telling the truth. Morris admits it after he tries to seduce Scully and she goes along far enough just to get him to handcuff himself to the bed before pulling her gun. Looking into it, there's no way to reverse it that anyone is aware of, so they just try to cope with their new lives. In the process, Morris completely renovates Mulder's apartment, including tracking down the bedroom. Up to this point, we've only ever seen Mulder sleeping on the couch. Now that was because... In Vancouver, they didn't have enough room to build an apartment for Mulder as part of the set, because that would really be a standing set. Since they moved to L.A., they could afford that, and they just explain it by having Morris Fletcher open the door and stacks of boxes and junk and porno magazines just come pouring out. So Fletcher cleans that up, remodels it, gets a waterbed. When Scully forces him to confess and they try to work to start turning things back, they find out that General Wegman, the boss of the base, is actually the one who was the informer. One of his underlings, who's been riding Mulder as Morris Fletcher and saying, no, he was the informer, he's the leak, and has some black marks on his record, is the one who figures out that some of the other side effects that they've seen with, you know, lizards getting stuck in rocks and another case of a body swap between the pilot and an elderly woman in the area are just naturally reversing themselves if you give them enough time, and if you put the subjects back where they were when the original incident occurs. 
So he manages to arrange to get Mulder and Morris back where they were when it happened, and everybody forgets everything that took place. They just walk away with no memory of anything that happened in the past couple of days. Now, it's only things within range that are reversed. So when Mulder and Scully go back, they've got no memory of this trip. Presumably, they have no memory of the time they spent on this case and the interaction Scully had with Kirsch, although Kirsch probably would remember because everything back in Washington was unchanged. So Scully had a couple of coins that had been fused together that were still fused. Mulder was shocked by the remodeling when he got back to his apartment. But there's no real follow-up on that. Now, for the guest stars, we've got John Mahan as General Wegman, who's also known for his work in Armageddon, LA Confidential, Zodiac, and The People Under the Stairs. Michael B. Silver is Howard Grodin, the underling who figured things out, managed to get things arranged to set them all right. He's also known for work in Supernatural, Jason Goes to Hell, Legally Blonde, and Playing by Heart. Nora Dunn plays Joanne Fletcher. Morris, his wife. She's best known for Saturday Night Live, Three Kings, Bruce Almighty, and Drop Dead Gorgeous. And of course, the big guest star is Michael McKean as Morris Fletcher. He's known for This is Spinal Tap, Clue, Better Call Saul, A Mighty Wind, Laverne and Shirley, Earth Girls Are Easy, and playing Smallville's version of Perry White. This is not his last X-Files appearance, and it's not the only series where he plays Morris Fletcher. More on that later. He did get the part in this episode because Gary Shandling, David Duchovny's friend, was unavailable. It is a fun two-parter right down to the mirror dance, which was homage to both Duck Soup and the Lucille Ball sitcom episode with Groucho Marx guest starring where they reproduced the mirror dance from Duck Soup. The third-party reset button undoes things in really the only plausible way, but it does ignore the fact that everyone in Washington should remember the last few days and Mulder and Scully won't when they get back. So if they come back and they're missing a few days and nobody seems to notice they were missing, they're going to think, how is that possible? I know this is a popular episode. At the time I first compiled the IMDb scores, part one of Dreamland was actually the fourth highest rated episode of the entire series. But to me, that's a pretty gaping plot hole that should have been picked up in future episodes that just felt completely ignored. Now, as for the rest of it, what about the science of this, of the body swapping and of the superposition of things? If you look at the superposition of lizards and pilots and co-pilots getting stuck in physical objects, that has to be fatal. Yeah, at the quantum level, things can exist in the same place at the same time but that doesn't work for larger systems with structure. So none of these characters should have survived up to that point. Now going past the superpositions and into the body swapping, what would that mean? Well, it means that what makes us us is not actually a physical thing. So even if your soul, your essence, your paw, whatever you want to call it is real, that doesn't do the entire job. We know that memories are stored in part of a brain, and at least to a pretty good degree, how those memories are stored. If your souls switch bodies, your memories would still be those that belong to that body. That's what they're tied to. So then, what would the difference be if your souls are swapped? Is the soul part of the decision-making process? Is that part of what dictates your emotional states? If souls exist, what do they do? 
in the body? What role in the biology do they have that a body swap could take advantage of? Because we've mapped out the parts of the brain that deal with memory and emotions and decision-making. Those are all tied to our physical selves. So what job is left for the soul to do exactly? Well, if we dig into the science of souls, as far as science is concerned, they're just not a thing. There have been no reputable experiments that have found souls. Now, I say reputable because there have been experiments done which claim to do that. One notable one is the one that was the source of the title for the film 21 Grams. The experiment was done in 1901 and published in 1907 in the Journal of the American Society of Psychical Research. Now, Dr. Duncan McDougall believed that humans had souls and animals didn't, and he further postulated that souls had weight, so he decided to measure the weight of humans and dogs as they died to determine the difference, and published a report that claimed that the human soul weighed about 21 grams. Now, some kind soul has uploaded the entirety of that study to the internet, so we can actually take a look at what he originally wrote at the experimental design, at everything, and see how it holds up. Now, he says his scale was sensitive to two-tenths of an ounce. That's reasonable. It's about 5.6 grams with a conversion. All of his work was in the imperial system. So when people are quoting 21 grams, that's not a direct quote from the paper. That's converting one of the numbers he used. Now, if you've used scales in the past, then you may understand that if the subject is moving, then the weight on the scale or the reading will change. You can also get small changes in a sensitive enough scale just from differences in air pressure. Furthermore, statistically speaking, when you're measuring a quantity, you need you generally considered about 30 good measurements before you can even begin to claim any sort of measurement accuracy. So, knowing that we're looking for 30, let's take a look at his actual data. He listed them patient by patient. Patient number one was a man suffering from tuberculosis, and he lost three-fourths of an ounce, or about 21.3 grams at the time of death, as measured by these very sensitive scales on which the deathbeds were mounted. The patients would lie on that bed for you know, generally several hours at a time, and McDougall would continue monitoring them and continue adjusting the scale as their weight changed. Patient 2 stopped breathing but kept showing facial convulsions. So that was over a period of about 18 minutes. Multiple losses of weight were noted between the end of the breathing and the fact that they were certain of the death, even following some resuscitation attempts. Patient number 3 lost half an ounce immediately upon death and then one ounce later. Patient number four, they reported problems because the scale was not finally adjusted and they had, quote, a good deal of interference by people opposed to our work, end quote. But the fluctuations that they measured indicated that this patient actually gained anywhere from three-eighths to half an ounce at the time of death. Patient number five, at the immediate point of death, there was a clanking, that there was a significant difference in weight, but that was a weight gain. So that one was written off. And patient number six was declared to not be a fair test. The patient died within five minutes of being put in the deathbed rather than three to six hours. And the beam was not yet set. 
By the beam, I mean the balance beam, so they didn't have an accurate measure of the weight before or after. The experiment stops with patient number 6, so we needed at least 24 more measurements to get a good read. But of these, 3 showed a loss in weight, 2 showed a gain in weight, and 1 was indeterminate. So we really only had 5 points of data. 3 down, 2 up. So it should be pretty obvious to any researcher that this is far from conclusive. Now, while McDougall admitted that more research was needed because there were low statistics, he also drew his results exclusively from patient number one. So he had five points of data, and his published results were based exclusively on the one point that fit his preconceived notions that he had coming into the experiment. Now, to his credit, one of the refutations I've heard of this is talk about bowel movements and bladder movements that come with death. Reading the original source paper that was accounted for, especially given that any waste that was expelled from the bodies remained on the bed. They also tried to measure any difference from, you know, full and empty lungs and were unable to measure any even when healthy patients were inhaling and exhaling rather vigorously, which makes sense. A scale sensitive to two-eighths of an ounce is not sensitive enough to measure the difference between full and empty lungs, because we really never really have empty lungs. We have expanded lungs and contracted lungs, which always have some gases in them. As we're inhaling, the gas is predominantly the same mixture that we have in air, as we're exhaling, some of that oxygen has been replaced by carbon dioxide. So we don't see a huge difference because of that. Now McDougall also repeated this experiment with 15 dogs, never reporting any weight loss from them, but also admitting that he could not actually find any sick dogs. So it's kind of assumed that he killed those 15 during the course of the experiment. He never states that. So he did not do well in terms of accounting for statistical and systematic errors. Statistical errors are the ones you get just because of random fluctuations. Where you do everything right, there's still some uncertainty in the data. And some of that is because of the limits of our ability to measure things accurately. There's also systematic errors, which are issues with the experimental design that you may or may not be able to overcome. So for example, if you measure things to the millimeter because that's the finest division on the ruler, then you're going to get errors because you're rounding to the nearest millimeter when data is coming in at 0.3 millimeters or 0.4 millimeters. So more precise equipment can reduce some of that. Those are part of the contributions to statistical errors, and they're fairly easy to recognize and account for. Other systematic errors are much more difficult to spot. One example. A lot of first-year physics students that I worked with had to measure the period of one swing of a pendulum. To accurately measure the period, you want to have a fairly long amount of time. The human reaction time comes into play. The accuracy of the stopwatches comes into play. But they're both raw values. So it's always, say, a tenth of a second. So most university lab students are recommended to measure 10 periods and then divide that number by 10. That way, the proportionate errors 
for your reaction time and for the limitations on the stopwatch are not as significant. The systematic error comes in because there's always at least one group that will pull the pendulum all the way to the right, let it go, and count the first period when the pendulum bob is now all the way left, when that's only half a period. The full period is when the pendulum swings there and back. People start with half a swing, then the pendulum goes back and forth, and they keep counting every time it hits the left instead of every time it hits the right. So in the end, the time frames that they are treating as being the length of 10 periods are only 9.5 periods, which of course will throw in a systematic error into all the data. So this was a horribly flawed experimental design. And in six years, he was unable to get it published in any proper medical journals. Somehow, the New York Times found out about it and reported it first in March of 1907, even though he'd been trying to get it published since 1901. And then it was eventually published in the American Society of Psychical Research's journal. Not physical research, not medical research. So I'd really like to know how the New York Times got their hands on it. This seems to me like he was trying to publish to justify his preconceived notions, but no legitimate publication in the science field would take it. And he ended up getting it published and getting interest in the paper through the New York Times, where the vetting process would not have been done by people who are used to evaluating scientific research papers on the proper scientific research grounds. So the bad science reporting that we have today is not a recent thing. It's been going on for, I guess, at least 111 years. Anyway, that's about all we have to say about Dreamland Parts 1 and 2. Join us again in two weeks' time when we take a look at How the Ghosts Stole Christmas. Thank you for listening.